Well, if you turn in your Bibles, we're going to get back to Genesis after a short break that we did for the Christmas season. I want to make a correction. You know, if I corrected every mistake that I make in a sermon, I'd probably never get done doing anything. Usually it's I say the wrong name, and I know that you guys understand I meant Jesus and not Moses or, you know, whatever. Uh, You get ahead of yourself in speech. We all do that. But once in a while I'll say something that it's like, eh, I probably should correct that. And this is just, I mean, it's a minor thing in a sense. I said that the phrase, of her substance, is in the Nicene Creed. It's actually in the Athanasian Creed. Uh, Much longer creed. We've not said that one yet in the church. That's a pretty big one. Um, But it's in the Athanasian Creed. And actually it's twice in the Westminster Standards. And that's what I was thinking of. But I was trying to think of the source on the the cuff when I said Nicene. But it's in Westminster Confession, chapter 8, paragraph 2. That Jesus was of her substance. And the larger catechism, 37. Jesus, in his human nature, was of her substance. Of Mary's substance. Very important. God did not create de novo. A divine egg and put it in Mary. It was of her naturally spawned egg the way women naturally spawn. So that she could really give birth to a human who was guilty. Be able to, or rather could represent us. His, his guilt could, he could take our guilt for um, our sins because he was one of us. He was one of the race of Adam. Yet God preserved him from sin, both from his father. He didn't have a human father. And from his mother. But not by creating a new egg. And not by an immaculate conception. God just kept her sin from infecting him. So I just wanted to point that out. That to me was important. That that is creedal. The Westminster divines didn't make that up. Though they contain that phrase. It goes back to the creed of Athanasius. Well, today... We're back in Genesis. If you remember, Abraham was pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah at the end of chapter 18. Pleading that God wouldn't destroy them. If he found even ten righteous people, which I argued to you meant ten people who had not given into the sin of Sodom. Because there were no righteous people. Abraham knew he wasn't perfectly righteous. That wasn't what he was praying for. Just ten people who still said that God's word is true. That human nature itself teaches that... This kind of relationship is wicked. And there wasn't ten, as we'll see. And so God's justice falls upon Sodom and Gomorrah. But also we're going to see God's grace operating in Sodom. Amazingly so. And we remember that's what Abram prayed for. Abraham prayed that God would spare the city if he found ten righteous. And God said, I'll spare the whole place for their sake if I do. And there is one. We know, and we saw in our scripture reading, righteous Lot three times, and God rescues Lot. And part of Sodom and Gomorrah's story is not just the destruction of the cities, but the salvation of this straying son of God, ultimately, a son of the church. Lot was a believer. He was doing things he shouldn't have been doing. He was in a mess of a situation, but God still was able to rescue him. And I want to encourage you this morning that if you are struggling or if you are flirting with or you are involved in massive sin, that God can rescue you. In fact, will rescue you. Your call, though, from him is to repent, to turn, to believe. There has to be that fruit that is seen if you are a believer. And we see that fruit in Lot, though Lot's a mixed bag. And we're going to see that as well. But we're going to move now into Sodom in our text. After being outside of it with Abram and with the uh, 
angels and with the Lord who is one of the angels. It's a very timely text, it seems to me, for our world today because we're going to see the infectious and and, and, um, deteriorating nature of sin and yet the power of God's grace to rescue in any situation. If you'll notice in the bulletin, the article, I deal with a little side issue. One of the criticisms of this text, and there are many, by the uh, uh, liberal scholars, progressive scholars in the church, by the way. It's rare that secularists care about what the Bible says. But um, the blindness that the angels strike the men with, criticisms have been put forward there. It's not realistic. If you'll read the article, you'll see the text itself shows it was not literally physical blindness. It was mental confusion which occurs at least one other place in the time of Elisha, but a few other examples as well. The commentators and the text itself show this to be the case. So a little technical point that I didn't want to take time to preach about, I wrote about instead. So let's turn to God's word, but let's turn to him in prayer first. Father, again, we pray for your blessing on your word. Cause your word to be preached accurately and faithfully. Cause your people to be rid of their conceptions of this text maybe and the things that they might even hold dear to let them believe what your word says let me bring no agenda let your word alone speak to us in Jesus name amen hear now the word of the Lord from Genesis 19 this is God's holy word now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom when Lot saw them he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground And he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly. So they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now before they lay down, the men of the city... The men of Sodom, both old and young, all of the people from every quarter surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and they said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, stand back. Then they said, this one came in here to stay, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, 
And whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But to his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. And the Lord established this word in our hearts this morning. I'm going to cover this text. It's a difficult text, not so much in what it means, but in order to explain it to a mixed audience, with young children, going to have to talk about mature themes. I'm going to try to be very cautious and judicious in my language. It is in Scripture. And I want you to know as parents that it is your duty and prerogative and blessing, really, to teach your children the Scriptures and to teach them the things that they need to know as you discern they can handle them, especially mature themes. And if you... Notice in our world, we do that in educational systems. The children are not taught higher math until about 7th or 8th grade because the brain isn't able to do those kind of logical things until then. And likewise, children are not taught things about their bodies, at least traditionally, until about 7th or 8th grade because that's when their bodies are beginning to change. And they don't really even understand and have the feelings and desires until that age. And so that's when health classes teach things about our bodies and our reproductive systems and our genitals and things like that. But as parents, you decide that with your child when they're mature enough to do that. And when they have questions, one of the things you can do is to answer their questions. I wrote a while back how to talk to your kids about sex, and I gave different uh, ideas how to do that, and I can reproduce that if anybody wants. Uh, And it's a little pamphlet that's helped some people. But one of the things that you are to do as a parent sometimes is to say, you know what, you're too young to understand that, and I'll tell you when you're older. And that's good enough, kids, if your mom and dad say that. That's good enough. Sometimes we do need to wait till we're older to learn certain things. But that's for parents to discern for their children as children are different. But I want to begin with this text. Again, notice the justice of God. I want you to notice the justice of God. That was the question at the end of chapter 18. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And God declared to Abraham in that text his intention to go down to the city to investigate the report that has come to him. Very anthropomorphic picture, right? God getting a report. I mean, he knows all things, but this is the way God tells us he makes certain, right? Before he judges that he knows everything. He assures us of that in this human kind of way, that he's going to go down, that he's going to investigate, that he's going to leave no stone unturned, and that God looks at all the evidence, nothing escapes him, and he is not rash, and he is not biased, he doesn't make mistakes, he doesn't play favorites, he's never cowed, he's never intimidated, and he's never bribed. His justice is perfect. And that was the message at the end of chapter 18. He will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. He assured Abraham of that. And so he's going to come down and see. And he comes down by the two angels. Remember, there were three that appeared to Abraham. One stays with Abraham, who, I, who is the Lord. It seems that the Lord appeared in this man. At first, Abraham just thinks that there are three men. That was very important. He had no idea. He entertained angels unawares. Lot's about to do the same thing. 
he's not going to know. He's going to think they're men. One of the reasons why they eat with them is to make them think that they're men. They're testing them. Abraham was being tested. Lot and the cities are going to be tested. Remember, that was the point. They're going to go down and see. The city's going to get a test. And in fact, the test is going to include the one righteous man who is there because God assured uh, Abraham of that. And so when the angels get to the city, by the way, they leave. The two angels leave. If you look at the end of chapter 18, well, verse 22 of chapter 18. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, two of them. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So it's the late afternoon. These two angels go from Mamre toward Sodom. Sodom, depending upon where it is in the Dead Sea Valley, and we don't really know, was 20 to 40 miles away. It says in our first verse, in the evening they got there. We know these are angels, right? They leave, maybe immediately they're there. Maybe it's an hour, I don't know. Late afternoon, evening. Nobody can traverse that 20 to 40 miles in that time. But the angels are there, they're angelic. And God is going to test the city. Whether or not he should judge the city. That's the question. And so... We see them enter the city and immediately we see Lot. And this is really important because Lot acts the exact same way that Abraham does. In fact, uh, if you compare, and the scholars and the commentators do this, compare the first eight verses of chapter 18 and the first three verses of chapter 19, you'll see almost an identical response of Lot to the strangers as Abraham responded to the strangers. And that's really important because we're going to see that Lot really is. A believer. Remember I said when he went down into Sodom, he was a believer. He was not acting like a believer. He was not making choices based upon the way a believer should make choices. But still he was. All right? He was with Abraham. Abraham is the one who taught him about the Lord. Abraham is the one who taught him God's word. That's when he was converted. And he is a converted person. And we know that again from Second Peter as we saw. But when Abram saw the three men, what does he do? He rises And he runs to meet them. When Lot sees the three men, he rises and he goes to meet them. It's only two men, I'm sorry, with Lot. But it's the same thing, right? And what happens? They both bow down. Abram was sitting at the tent. Lot was sitting at the gate. They both offer rest to the men. They both offer to wash their feet. They both offer food and drink. And Lot prepares a feast. Abram's feast was bigger. Much more bigger, much more lavish. But Lot's bow was more humble. Lot bows with his face to the ground. Never mentions Abram's face when he bows. And so then those details aren't matter. What, what we're to see here is that both of these men did show this love of the stranger. Both of these men showed that they were believers in how they treated the strangers that they were seeing. And again, both of them think that they're human beings. They don't know that they're angels at the time. And so that's important. Lot does well. Passes the test. There is one righteous person in Sodom. What about the rest of the city? Verse 4. Now before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom. Now listen to this. The old and the young. All of the people from every quarter. The Hebrew from the very edges. Now it doesn't mean, and we should never interpret a passage like this. That every man, woman and child in Sodom came at that moment, the people who were dying, the women who were giving birth, the people who were ill. No, it doesn't. It just means that the whole city in spirit and heart was completely behind what we're about to see. 
There was no faction of the city. There was no group of the city that would disagree with what these people are about to do. The whole city is there. The whole city agreed with this kind of thing. And the angels have come for that purpose. To show forth. And so what God's word is doing is showing us the rest of the city is deserving of judgment. Because why did they come? Why do they surround the house? We don't have to guess. Verse 5. And they called to Lot and they said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us. That we may know them. Carnally. The New King James adds. It's just the Hebrew word to know. Yadah. It's often used for sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. And Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Afterwards, she bore Abel. And Cain knew his wife, verse 17 of Genesis 4, and she conceived and bore Anor. In Genesis 4, 25, and Adam knew his wife again, and she conceived and bore again. To know is the Hebrew way of speaking of a man and a woman, intimate And this is the way in which the conceiving of children is described to us. And so sexual intimacy, uh, usually sexual intercourse between a man and a woman under this word no. And the Greek translation, usually because the Greeks, remember, if you remember the Greek translation, the Septuagint, um, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures done in Alexandria in Egypt by Jews 100 to 300 B.C. Over that period, at least those are the extant uh, manuscripts that we have. Um, but the, the Septuagint uses a particular word here. It doesn't use gnosko, to know, oida, to know. It uses the word that means sexual intercourse. Uh, the word where we get coitus from, coitus, or coitus, however you want to pronounce it. The act of sexual intercourse between a man and a woman. The Hebrew, the Septuagint only uses that word here in one other place in the whole Bible. Doesn't use the ordinary word to know. Right? So the text seems to be uh, the case. Now, this view, and this is the historic view of the church, this was the sin of Sodom. All right? So God's going to judge them now. They've gathered together to do this vile thing that the Word of God clearly says is sinful. The traditional view of the church. For in the majority of the church for really 1900 years. But in the 20th century, that view of this text has been vigorously challenged by, again, scholars, commentators, people who claim to be Bible teachers, and even whole churches and denominations have set forth a different view of Genesis 19. Maybe some of you are familiar, maybe some of you are not. But I do think I need to answer it. And their view of the text is that Genesis 19 is not about the sin of homosexuality. It's about the sin of not being hospitable, of not showing hospitality. Or it's the sin of non-consensual, what we would call rape, whether uh, whatever kind of rape, but this is... These are the arguments. It's one of these two things because the Bible does not teach. This is the pre, uh, presupposition of that view. The Bible does not teach, cannot teach that homosexuality is a sin because that's the way God makes some people. And so that can't be wrong. So they have to reinterpret all these texts. And so secondly, I want you to notice the depravity of sin. I want you to notice the depravity of sin. The first thing I want to do before I get into those two views is to first of all notice something new happens that night. Certainly Lot 
would not have for the first time ever shown hospitality to strangers as he does that day when he sees these two angels. But if you notice how he strongly, it says, insisted that they not spend the night in the open square, but spend the night in his house. Why is he doing that? Well, we know why, because of what happens later. Not Lot knows what happens in, in Sodom at night. And he knows the danger to the strangers, so he wants them to come to his house. Why? Because he thinks his house is safe. Because this has never happened before. Normally he can get someone to stay in his house and they're safe. The brazenness of what goes on in the streets of Sodom at night, they don't go breaking down doors. They don't go into the homes. They respect the property of their citizens, at least up to this point. Lot never dreamed verse 5 would happen, verse 4 and 5. Why would he ask them to come to his house if he thinks that night they're going to come and try to take them? They would have left the city. It's absurd to say that this happened all the time. Not before. Lot never experienced this. This is something new. I personally think, again, because the angels went there to test the city, that as it were, the hearts of all are laid bare. And the restraining, preventing grace that God often shows to the wicked is removed so that they go to this step because God, again, in my first point, the justice of God, he wants to show us that Sodom deserved destruction. Everyone in the city agreed with what was about to happen. And that was the point of it. But again, God, by the angelic presence, causing the hearts to come out, maybe they wouldn't have gotten to this point and done this on another night if it was a normal stranger, but the angels are there. Right? This is why Lot just happens to be there. Now Lot's at the gate, which means either he's an important person, part of the ruling council, one of the judges of the city, or he has his business and he's doing business there because all that would be done at the gate. But clearly Lot shows great hospitality to these strangers, as Abraham did. And that was a really important thing in Oriental culture, even to this day. Right, One of the pillars of Islam is to show the hospitality to strangers. And this is important, important part of their culture, an important commandment from God. We are to show love to the stranger, okay? It's one of those good things that, that man, uh, in God's uh, preventing grace, allows to continue to do. We don't all run around trying to kill each other. Even unbelievers are usually decent to each other. You know, we can thank God for that. But Lot does that, and Abraham did that. However, even in that hospitality that Abraham and Lot show we can see a fundamental difference as to the reason why they were showing it. As what fueled them, what motivated them to do what they did. And you can see it in the different context. If you flip back and forth, you'll see it. I'm just going to summarize it for you. Abraham, when he sees the three men, he's sitting in the doorway of his tent, it says, in the heat of the day. And he runs to meet them. Abraham is concerned about the sun of the sky, the natural heat of the day. Because what is hospitality? I I jumped ahead. Hospitality is love of stranger. I showed you that already, right out of the Greek, love of stranger. And the the way in which you show hospitality is you meet the needs that the person has. Dirty feet, they need washed. Tired, they need rested. Hungry, they need food. Thirsty, they need water. And you also protect, right? They're under your protection. They're in your house. You know, or your tent or whatever. So those are the two things that, that you did in Oriental hospitality. You were responsible for your guests, all right? So Abram, when he brings them in, when they runs out and offers hospitality, he's concerned it's the heat of the day. 
He's sitting himself in the shade of his tent, in the doorway of his tent to try to get that breeze. Abram is concerned about, he's concerned about the sun of the sky, the natural heat of the day. Lot, sitting at the gate in the evening, no heat. Lot is concerned about the sons, S-O-N-S, not S-U-N, the sons of Sodom and the unnatural heat of their rapacity. Abraham says, refresh your hearts. And then continue when the danger is past. The danger of heat stroke, the danger of exhaustion, the danger of dehydration. Refresh your hearts and then continue. Lot says, spend the night. And then continue when the danger is past. The danger of the nightlife of Sodom being out in the streets. Do you see the differences? Likewise... We can't conclude that the text is merely condemning a non-consensual relationship, all right? Uh, We can do this in a couple of ways. First of all, verse 5 uses the word no. And I've already told you that the word no, and you know this from your Bibles. If you've read your Bible at all, you know, the word no is used to describe intercourse. But no, the word no, yadah in Hebrew, yadah or da'ath is knowledge, yadah he knew. It's never used by itself, ever, to describe forced uh, or attempted forced relations with a person. It's never used that way. The, the word is never used uh, uh, in, in a rape context, okay? So, give you a couple examples. Hebrews always uses other words, in other words. The Hebrew always uses another word when a man forces himself on a woman, which is typically the way it happens. So in Genesis 34, Shechem, if you remember the story, remember Dina, the, daughter, the sister of uh, the sons of Jacob? He forces her, it says. Shechem it uses the word seized, humbled, afflicted, oppressed. He forced Dina. It doesn't use the word Shechem knew Dina. That's what you do when you're a couple, when you're consenting to one another. All right? Also, when Amnon, the son of David, uh, rapes his half-sister Tamar. In 2 Samuel 13, we get the exact same word. It doesn't say, and Amnon knew Tamar. Amnon forced, Amnon oppressed, Amnon afflicted, Amnon seized Tamar. It uses that word. Because it's talking about non-consensual. Not to know someone in the context of a relationship that they are both having. The same thing in the Judges 19 when the Levite, remember, is traveling through Israel and he has his concubine. Very similar to our text, roving band, unfortunately, this time of Benjamites doing the same thing, acting like Sodom. All right, but the same thing. He puts his Levite out the door and they violate her, they oppress her, they afflict her, they seize her. They don't just know her. Hebrew word isn't used for that. And so when these men say, bring us out to them that we may know them, They're not saying, bring us out to them, and we're going to force them. They're saying, bring us out to them that we may have relations with them. The New American Standard says that we may have relations with them. The NIV just says that we may have sex with them. Sometimes the NIV, uh, the old NIV, uh, does a pretty straightforward job. But that's what they're asking for. 
They're asking for this. Now, how and then what which that would have been brought about? Would they have tried to seduce them, beguile them, get them drunk, take them, and maybe eventually force them? I don't know, but they don't use that word. They don't use that concept. That's important, too, later, because when Lot offers his daughters in a vile thing, and we'll look at that in a moment, he's not saying, oh, no, don't rape these men, rape my daughters. That's not what he's saying, okay, because they asked to know them, okay? But let's just notice that this word is never used in that context. What the men are saying is, bring them out that we may know them. Because we have the right to access your house and teach them what we believe about sexuality. We have the right to teach everyone. We have the right to the stranger. You can't shelter them from us. How dare you? not tolerate us in expressing our sexuality to whomever we want. We have the right to do so. Bring them out. Don't keep them from us. This is really scary to me because I think I'm seeing schools beginning to do that. I just read we're a school in California. K through 12 now. They're going to teach the trans view of gender, sexuality, family, beginning in kindergarten. And what happens if some parents say no? Maybe they'll be considered to be transphobic. Maybe the kids will be taken from them. It's becoming, bring them out, that we may have our say and show them. It's the same kind of thing, isn't it? It's kind of scary. I've seen where, and I've read articles, where a school or a kid is being encouraged by the school counselor that he, he is a she or she is a he, and they don't tell the parents And if the parents don't go along with it, at least in England, they took the kid away from them. Bring them out that we may know them. We have a right. We're going to do this. But again, it's not just talking about, you know, the R word, the non-consensual. It's saying that we have a right to do what we want, you know. And this is the thing with sin. It's never satisfied. It never rests. It never says, okay, we've got enough. I mean, the city didn't get to this point overnight. Right? This happened by degrees, as it always does. And yet sin never rests. It's like a cancer. You know, cancer destroys itself because it destroys the host. And when the host dies, all the cancer dies. But it never stops. It's going to keep going unless it's destroyed. This is the depravity of sin. Thirdly, I want you to notice the corruption of sin. I want you to notice the corruption of sin. As I said already, homosexuality was not the only sin in Sodom. They clearly were not hospitable to the strangers. They do seem to threaten violence and and perhaps rape in verse 9. When they say to Lot, we will deal worse with you than with them. And they begin to press him. Now they're physically assaulting Lot. Okay, so, so, you know, we have at least the the possibility that that's going to happen. Forced is going to happen. They're going to do worse to Lot than they were going to do to them. But we see in many places of the scripture other sins that occurred in, in Sodom. And we don't want to deny this because this is what the progressives always go. Oh, look at these other verses that talk about these other sins. Absolutely. Many sins. You don't get to where Sodom was without embracing a lot of sin along the way. And so Jeremiah 23, I've seen a horrible thing in the prophets of Jerusalem. They commit adultery. They walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers. They try to get other people to sin. What's going on here in Sodom? So that no one turns back from his wickedness. They don't want anybody to call them to repentance. 
And then God says this, all of them are like Sodom to me and like the inhabitants of Gomorrah. So there was mentioned lies, adultery, encouraging sin, discouraging repentance. Ezekiel 16, 49, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. Well, here we get it. This was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride. Fullness of food. I said in the Sunday school class today in Deuteronomy that this kind of sin doesn't happen in a third world country crushed by poverty and torn by war. You have to, you have, to have abundance to begin to explore you know, different kinds of sexual sin. You have to have all of your need. You have to have luxury. You have to have idleness and rest. It doesn't happen when you're scraping around for enough food to eat. This only happens when a, when a land has plenty. When a land has an abundance, when their needs are being met, and they can begin to think about new ways to pleasure themselves. That's when this kind of sin takes root. That's always when this kind of thing begins to happen. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Yeah. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. And they were haughty, very proud. And committed abomination before me. Isaiah 3, 9. The look on their countenance witnesses against them. They declare their sin as Sodom. They declare it. They broadcast it. They do not hide it. They were proud of their sin. That's what this sin does. Unlike any other sin. You know, thieves don't demand a month to honor thieves. We want to have a month where everybody joins with us and talks about how thievery is great and how some people are made thieves and that you need to be an ally to our thieving movement and recognize the thieves. Or the, do people that gossip want that? They demand recognition. Murderers. This particular sin demands recognition. Pride Pride, in all these verses, pride is emphasized. That's what we learn about this particular sin. That this kind of pride, and all sin prospers in pride because the answer to sin is personal humility. That's what repentance is. You humble yourself and you repent and you're ashamed. My grandmother, I remember, would do something and she would say, shame on you, you know. But the kids probably don't even know this. I don't even know what this means. But that's what she would do. Does anybody, anybody else is like the, the scraping of the finger? I, well, hopefully it doesn't mean anything bad. I don't know. But, you know, like she would not be like, oh, I guess I shouldn't have done that. And I should feel bad about it. She was telling me that. The lack of shame. Listen to what God says about Israel when they're beyond reform. Jeremiah 6, 15. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. Nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall. Among those who fall, at the time I punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. There are many sins in Sodom and Gomorrah. But when the Holy Spirit wanted us to see their sins, he gave this example. They demanded sex with the strangers. And what's really important here is it wasn't just sexual immorality. We know that from the vile thing that Lot does. As awful as it is, a believer doing something like this, offering his daughters, yet because he does this, again, in the sovereignty of God, I'm always amazed about God's, how his spirit shows us the truth, refutes the lie, even in the word itself. 
You can't argue that what they wanted was, was sexual morality in general. You can't argue that what they wanted was just be able to force themselves on someone. Because Lot offered his daughters. But they didn't want girls. These were men. They wanted boys. They didn't want girls. That's clear from the text. You can't deny that. You can't make this a forced thing. You can't make this a general sex thing. Because Lot offered his daughters. They were untouched by men. If you read of the literature of the sex trafficking stuff, that's what is prized. That's why they go for the little ones. They're pure. They're untouched. Lot's two daughters were pure. They didn't want that. They wanted unnatural perversion. That was the level of their sin. But I just don't want to notice the corruption in Sodom, which was great. I want you to notice the corruption in Lot, unfortunately. Lot, Lot started off as a believer. He was the nephew of Abram, Abram and we know from the New Testament he's, he's a believer. But Lot begins, if you remember, Abraham and Lot's groups are too big. And Abraham says, you pick wherever you want. And Lot only notices the economic prosperity of the cities of the plain and that it was lush, that it was like the Garden of Eden. And he says, I'll take that. And so Abram takes the rest, even though it was all Abram's and he didn't have to do that. But this was Abraham's loving his nephew. But Lot makes this decision where economic prosperity is number one. Economic prosperity is important, but that's the only thing he notices. And the text says at that point, we're all the way back in Genesis 13, verse 12. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain. And he pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. The Bedouins would live outside the city in their tent so that they can conduct trade. That's the way, that's the way Lot began. He pitched a tent outside the city. Where's he at now? Where's his tent? Lot's not outside the city anymore, is he? Lot has moved into Sodom. And it's what we're about to see. Sodom has moved into Lot. When he leaves the city... Remember, he and Abraham had so much cattle and so many flocks and herds and so many servants that they were quarreling. They were like two cities. The only ones that leave. Now, there probably are some servants that go because they have wine and possessions. So, there, you know, the text doesn't tell us. There are probably some household servants that went with Lot and his wife and his two daughters. But that's it. A handful of people from maybe a thousand. Lot led them there. He led them into Sodom. And Sodom has corrupted them. Sodom so corrupts Lot's wife, we'll remember. She wants to go back and she's judged. He loses his wife. He loses everything. Because he moved. He kept moving closer. I'm sure he justified it. I'm sure he talked about being a good witness. I'm sure he talked about how this is a loving thing to do and I'll have an influence. You know, all the things that people say today when they begin to move and justify and say it's okay and it's loving and you know it's not that big a deal anyway times have changed did you notice the two scripture readings that I gave you both of them say Sodom and Gomorrah is an example Sodom and Gomorrah is an example to the church to Christians of what God will do 
I know Christians are moving. Churches are moving. Churches are embracing this. Did you see what the Pope did last month? Anybody see that? They always very carefully nuance, distinguish. This is where the word, you know, sophistry and things like that came from. Um, But what do they do? What did the Pope say? He's blessing now same-sex unions. Now, not the marriage, the union. And it's not this kind of blessing, it's this kind of blessing. And all of this fine point of distinction. And you know what? We Protestants should not rejoice at that. First of all, we should not rejoice when any people embrace evil. We should never rejoice at that. But especially the Roman Catholic Church, which professes the triune God, as we do. Because the world respects the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has a say in the world. And as long as the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church say marriage is only between one man and one woman... And homosexuality is a sin. And three years ago, this same thing came up. And you know what the Pope said then? The church cannot bless sin. The church has moved. They're blessing sin. Now, not marriage, but the couple. So I guess it's okay to have a fornicating homosexual relationship. But when and if, God forbid, the Roman church would suddenly someday say that this is good and normal and God has done it. Guess what we all look like? Radicals. And they will, you know what they'll say? You're against Christ. Don't you listen to the Pope? They don't make a distinction between Protestants and Catholics. You're you're not Christians. The Pope has said this is good. You are heretics. You are cultists. And we're going to get rid of you. I think it's going to be a really scary day. If Rome ever falls that far. We better pray that God preserve that communion and not give them over any further to calling evil good and good evil. But I want to notice just in the last part of the corruption what Lot has done. Lot has gotten to the point where now he offers his daughters. He offers his daughters to this mob. Now many men try to ameliorate and lessen the thing. Lot probably knew that they were going to reject it. He knows the city. He knows the Sodomites. He, so, he, you know, he offers them as a show, but it's not real. Or it's exaggerated courtesy, you know, uh, where Reuben says, I'll kill my, two so- or kill my two sons if I don't bring Simeon back. And he didn't really mean it. And, you know, or Herod saying, up to half my kingdom to Herodias, but she knew she couldn't actually ask, ask for half of it. Exaggerated courtesy. We do that a lot, right? The customer is always right. Not always. And every company that says that, doesn't literally absolutely mean it. So some say Lot doesn't really mean that. He's using this kind of exaggerated phrase because of the great duty of hospitality. And so like he says something that he probably wouldn't do or something that he thinks that they probably wouldn't do and all the rest. By the, and, 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 you know, they're citizens of Sodom and their husbands, if they're already married. Oh, no, these are the two that aren't married. So at the end of the verse, verse 14, it could be he has other daughters who are married or it could be that they're engaged. But if it's they're engaged, then his two daughters, who are virgins, are engaged to men in Sodom. They're already promised to men in Sodom. So he thinks that all of that stuff, you can try to ameliorate it a little bit. But I don't think it works. There have been other ways to do it um, as well. You know, somehow his, his daughters are less. By the way, he doesn't know these are angels. He thinks they're men. 
would Lot go out and beg the crowd and offer his daughters if he thinks he has two warriors of Jehovah in his house? He's going to be in the house saying, come on in. I want to see this. He's not going to go out and do that. He he shuts the door behind him. He risks his life. There's good in Lot. There's corruption in Lot. You know, there are some cultures, unfortunately, today, they wouldn't see a problem with what Lot did. Pre-Christian, anti-Christian philosophy, religion. Women are less. Women are property. Women are objects. Of course you offer the woman because it's a much less crime to corrupt the woman than it is if it was a man because she's lower. And that, that logically is irrefutable if a woman is less. This is what the Nazis did with the Jews. The Jewish race is less. This is why it was okay to kill them. Or what different class societies in communism. Why is it okay to crush the bourgeoisie? Because they're a lower form of human. And if the female is, then no big deal. He did the right thing. In Islam, there wouldn't be anything wrong with this. The husband, father, has the right to put his daughter to death if she dishonors him. It's called an honor killing. In China, when they had the one-child law, it was regular for women to abort or to give up for adoption, any girl baby, because they can only have one, and you've got to have the boy. He's more important. More for your economic prosperity in the future. Right now in India, that many times Indian families will expose their daughters, always their daughters, because they're considered to be less. Not their sons. It's Christianity that corrected that Satanism. It's Christianity. That's why I spend all that time in Genesis showing you the absolute equality of men and women to each other. Different strengths and weaknesses, different gifts, different roles in marriage. The wife is called to submit. The husband is not called to submit. Husband is called to lay down his life. Wife not called to do that. That's why I showed you that. That's why that text is so important. God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them. Man is them. How can part of them be less than the other? Part of the them man. Let them have dominion over the fish and the seed, birds of the air, over every creeping thing that creeps, etc., etc. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female is man. He created them. They're the same. They're the same. That's why I spent all that time in Genesis 9 to show you the descendants of Japheth and Ham and and Shem. They're the same. You can't say that this group of people is is superior to this group of people. Well, these ones migrate down here and they get darker skin and they're less human now. They come from the same two people. How can they be less? We know this scientifically, genetically, all the races, the sexes, the classes... You can get blood from anybody, organ from anybody. There's no difference. So where's the difference? It's not intellectually. We know that. Now that women are educated the same as men, there's no difference anymore. We used to see it when they weren't allowed to go to school. Study the literature. There's no difference. Men are stronger. They're able to wield power. So the world prizes men. We can conquer with men. We can force people with men. It's the world that's gotten into Lot. It's the world that's gotten into his daughters. We'll see that by the end of the chapter. But the corruption happened because Lot and his family did not 
fear God. They did not listen to the word of scripture. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good morals. Why does it say do not be deceived to Christians? Because we often are. Because we lie to ourselves. And we kid ourselves. And again, that we're being loving. And we're, you know, we're being a witness and all this stuff. And Jesus ain't with sinners. That's my favorite one. Jesus ain't with sinners. That's why I can accept all kind of sin. Do not be deceived. It will happen to you. It happened to Lot. Evil company ruins good morals. Does that mean we have to completely shun everyone who's a sinner? No, but we do not make our home with them. We do not become one with them. We stay and we fellowship with the saints. And we spend time with God in the word. And we witness to them and we call them to repent. But we do not share in their sins. And thank God Lot didn't. Lot didn't go that far. Notice verse 9. This one came to sojourn here, literally, and he keeps acting as a judge. New King James gets it right. It's two Hebrew words to judge, continual judging. He keeps judging us. He keeps judging us. In other words, Lot never said your homosexuality is okay. Don't do so wickedly, my brother. In Lot's twisted thinking, he would rather see them fornicate than commit adultery or commit homosexuality. That's why he offers his daughters. That's a sin too. But in Lot's twisted thinking, well, that's not as bad as this one. I don't dispute that. But how could you possibly say, commit this sin and not that one? That's what Lot was doing. Oh, here's my daughters. It's not as bad as unnatural perversion. You're sinning. You're offering them. Calvin calls it prostitution. Listen to what Calvin says. I love this quote. Lot does not hesitate to prostitute his own daughters. Listen to this, that he may restrain the indomitable fury of the people. And this is my favorite part. But he should have rather endured a thousand deaths. That's what Calvin says. What would a man do? Would a man send out his girls? I'll tell you what, one of the things that I fear sometimes is God would put me in a situation where I would, I know I can't fall from grace, but maybe where I would (laughs) and prove that the whole thing wasn't real. And one of my big fears, especially when the kids were little, is that somebody would do something to one of my kids because I don't know how I would stop from doing everything I could to hunt them down and to destroy them. God's grace would have to come upon me and do a new work because I would do, I would use every method of deceit. I would do everything that I could to get my hands on them. Lot sends, he's willing to send his little girls out to the crowd. And yet he's a believer. He's a believer. I've been involved in church discipline cases where a minister, unfortunately, was beginning to have a relationship with little boys. And in one situation, the dad knew. Didn't think it was going too far, so it was okay with him. You don't think this kind of stuff happens? It happens. Oh, this is the corruption of sin. What does Jesus say to do? If your hand causes you to sin. Enjoy part of it because that's loving and kind. It's good witness. Lop it off at the wrist. There's no, there's no... Finding a way to accept some sin. You can't. You will destroy yourself. You will destroy your house. You will destroy your family. And if you're a converted person, you won't lose your salvation. You'll just lose everything else. 
Beloved, we've got to stand against this sin. But the good news is, my fourth point, the blessing of salvation. The angels are not just there to destroy the wicked. They're there to save Lot, as corrupt as he is. God's wrath never falls on his people, though they might bring sufferings upon them. Lot forgot the fear of the Lord. He forgot God's judgment would fall. It's one of the things that the wicked always do. How do the wicked commit the sins that they do? They tell themselves God's not going to judge. Luke 17, verse 28. As it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. There's no judgment. Until the day Lot left Sodom. And it rained fire and brimstone from heaven. and destroyed them all. Did you see what the text call? The two texts that I gave you? Second Peter and Jude? Sodom and Gomorrah, an example for us. That we would fear the Lord. Beloved, we need to fear the Lord. We need to stay close to him. We need to not allow ourselves to be taken away by another gospel. There were blessings to Lot's family. There were. Notice, because of Lot's faith... He's told, anybody else you have, son-in-law, sons, daughters, whomever you have, servants, this is everybody. And Lot does. He sends out to his sons-in-law, either who had married or were betrothed. Word could be either one. So it's either the two virgin daughters or two other daughters. But he sends to them. And what do they do? You see, this is what happens when we harden ourselves in sin. God's not going to judge. You nut. Yeah, they circled. They surrounded your house. Yeah, right. What are you on now? Religious wacko. God's going to judge. That's the message of the text. Fear the Lord. Stay close to him. Don't bring unnecessary judgment in your life. We don't need to go around condemning the wicked. Lot didn't do that. He never accepted it. They called him a judge. But we see him calling them brothers. My brothers. He didn't want to see them destroyed. Neither did Abraham. But that doesn't mean we become Those who accept the sin. There is a way to do it. There is a way to love, to try to bless, and yet at the the same time not call evil good and good evil. Lot still was able to do that at some level, though he was corrupt because of how close he got. And what I hope to show us next time is the salvation of God when when he saves Lot and his family from Sodom. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, Lord God. For the admonition to fear you. What a blessing it is when we fear you because it keeps us close to you. We don't fear sin. We don't fear sinners. We fear you, the judge of sin and sinners. We don't want to provoke you. We don't doubt our salvation. But we recognize that we don't get a pass. That you will see your word come to pass. And so, Father, bless any here who are, who are trifling, who are straying, who are... Th- toying with, thinking they can have the pleasures of sin and the joys of salvation. Father, let them see that we need to fear you. We need to wash our hands of all iniquity, not leaving the world, but not becoming of the world. Help us to do that, Father, by loving you first, most of all. In Jesus' name, amen.